Hey, I'm Max Weisbrod, founder of Baton, a free matchmaking service for uh, early stage founders to find executive talent. Today on Fractionally Speaking, I'm speaking with Blake Harbor of Blake Harbor Consulting, a firm that focuses on early stage go-to-market uh, strategy and consulting. Blake, can you tell us a little bit more about what y'all do? Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Thanks, Max. Uh, I work with early stage B2B SaaS founders and small sales teams that are looking to build repeatability in their go-to-market motion. Uh, a lot of there's a lot of challenges in this transition between founder-led sales and uh, and then hiring their first couple sales reps. And a lot of founders tend to they they want to default to hiring either that VP of sales that's done it, and most VP of sales have actually never seen that stage and transition before, or they end up hiring SDRs, and then all of a sudden. They're an SDR manager, and they've never never managed SDRs in their life, and so there's a huge gap there. And I help bridge the gap there, help come in, help build repeatability around top of funnel and the early go to market function, so that it gives a founder the confidence to start to scale a team around it. So when we say early stage, that can be a little bit squishy depending on who you are. You know, if you are like somebody who is starting a business from scratch. Early stage can mean basically like no sales, but that's not what it sounds like you're talking about. You already talked about some of these developmental markers, right? There is there is a sales process. It just happens to, you know, center around the founder. They have like some sort of source of leads already in place, right? If they're talking about SDRs and what, what, how do you like when you're talking early stage like what's the bare minimum in place for somebody like you to be able to come in and deliver a transformation it's most helpful when the founder has sold themselves to at least a couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue and it usually comes when the founder starts to think about should i be hiring a sales rep or the next sales rep number two or three or should i be hiring that vp of sales and without that foundation it's really hard to extract the sales motion from a founder's brain. I, I talked to a lot of founders that are sub 100,000 of revenue and have three customers. Those are really, really hard. Even 500Ks is hard. There's still pre-product market fit challenges that uh, got to be fleshed out. But ultimately, this go-to-market motion typically resides in the founder's brain. The founder doesn't know how to translate that into a playbook that an SDR straight off so straight out of school could come in and execute on. And in order to scale past one and two million, that playbook has to be in place. Otherwise what happens is they start to hire all these sales reps, three, four, five sales reps, and they get six or nine months down the road. And maybe one sales rep got lucky and hit a, a decent number that makes the unit economics make sense. But then they're kind of back to the drawing board in terms of repeatability because the playbook actually never got built if that makes sense. And what drives a founder to reach out to you? What problems are they talking about in that initial meeting? I'd say 90% of the time, a founder has already gone through this full cycle. They've, they've gotten to 500K revenue. They started to build a sales team. They hired that VP of sales or CRO and ultimately turned them over after nine to 18 months. That's a really, really costly mistake. And at that point, founders typically have that light bulb moment of like, something else has to happen here. I need to do this differently. And that's where most of my conversations start is when a founder has gone 
through that experience because it's painful and it's extremely, extremely expensive. And so it's critical to be able to find someone that's seen this stage before because most sales leaders have never, ever seen the stage before, let alone the sales reps that you're hiring and the ability to, to extract that sales motion and start putting it into a playbook that's repeatable is extremely difficult. So what questions should these founders be asking when they're talking to a potential sales leader to come in and organize this part? Because I mean, we've got things like, you know, some, some companies are selling $3,000 deals and some companies are selling $3 million deals, which, you know, seems like it would be like completely different motions, completely different leaders. So what's, what's like, what, what, yeah. How, how, how do you think about that? It's critical to understand their experience that is related to the stage you're at. And the ARR is just, it's one indicator. What I really care about is understanding the evolution of the sales motion at the companies they've been at previously that can really dictate how advanced they are in developing the playbook. They might join, they might have joined a company previously that was at seven, eight million, but the evolution of the playbook was in its infancy. There was no playbook still. And that can be common. They might have also joined a company at 500K of revenue. And the playbook could be a little bit more advanced because you have a really strong go to market founder. That's, that's much more rare. But I, so I think it's really important to initially understand their experience previously and have they seen those early, early stages of what it takes to take something from really pre-product market fit and start to put this infrastructure around go-to-market in order to scale and do it efficiently. As we go into this economic downturn, like you can't just throw heads at, at the problem and hope that it works out because we have unlimited runway anymore. And so that evolution and understanding where a, a sales leader has been or a fractional executive has been and seen is really, really critical because you have to play this role of almost individual contributor also all the way up to a, an executive level and be able to understand the unit economics of the business and what's going to make sense as you start to scale the team. And those people are really, really hard to find because most have either seen the the opposite ends of the spectrum and the, the dashboard type sales leader or the really, really early sales leader that has never actually seen the high growth stage. Yeah, if you're used to coming in when there are already dashboards in place, you might not understand how things actually get instrumented in the first place. Yep. So you talked a little bit about runway. We're talking about companies that have already, you know, failed in a transformation before. You know, they've brought in a VP of sales who had the wrong experience, wrong expertise, and wasn't able to wasn't set up for success or wasn't able to succeed in that spot before. How are these firms capitalized? Are these like uh, venture-backed firms for the most part? Who, uh, how are they funding you know, this talent? Yeah, it's interesting because actually my customers are, I'd say 50-50 on venture-backed or bootstrap and both have the same challenges. I think the expectations of growth differ a little bit. The bootstrapped are typically a little more conservative in their approach, but have still gone through the same experience. And a lot of times the bootstrap ones have hired the venture backed high growth executive that is used to throwing bodies at a problem and then have had to reset 
and and kind of rewind after they've turned them over. And the venture-backed have a little more room to run or at least to test things faster. But ultimately, they're they're 50-50 in my experience so far on uh, on the go-to-market side. So when we're thinking about taking these companies from a place where they don't have a playbook in place, they don't really have as much of a repeatable process, they don't have product market fit, how do you know when a firm does get to that product market fit? What are the indicators? Is that a single state? Like, is that a place yeah. where they stay? What, what does it mean uh, functionally to them? When I start working with an organization, the number one thing we start to look at is top of funnel and repeatability there. More often than not, there's not a repeatable motion on top of funnel. And what that looks like is when I can sit down with a founder and say, how many meetings, how many net new meetings have you had in the last 30 days? And what happened to those meetings? And then how did you find those meetings? If we can't answer those questions and those numbers generally make sense for that business, then you're going to have a really, really hard time scaling any go-to-market function. And I don't care if that's direct, I don't care if it's through the channel, partnerships, whatever. There needs to be consistency and repeatability on that top of funnel first, because once we solve that problem, the rest of it becomes a hell of a lot easier, especially in this macro environment, is let's solve that problem. So I I spend an enormous amount of time with the organizations I work with, finding repeatability there and building that muscle. And, uh, and then as we start to see early indicators that that's working, and I'll give you an example, SMB, mid-market type, let's call um, $15,000 ACVs, higher velocity, higher volume type sales motions. We should be setting one meeting a day net new. And if we can't get there, the unit economics won't make sense on scaling a B2B sales team that's going direct. It would be really hard to, if that makes sense. So I spent a lot of time on top of funnel and looking at building systems and process that a team can execute there. And a lot of that kind of funnels around this, understanding your ICP really well, uh, understanding your target persona, because those are different. Your ICP and your persona are different. And then your target messaging to that persona. And there's a lot of work that we have to do there to get really clear about who we're going after what person we're going after in that organization and what we're saying to them that's going to resonate. It's kind of like you talked about talking about the person inside of inside of that organization, the actual there's the there's, you know, sometimes the economic buyer isn't the same person as, uh, you know, who's making the buying decision. You know, a, a lot of things can happen there. I know that from my own business, right, we figured out through testing basically that you know, we reach out to a hundred people on, on LinkedIn out of that hundred, we book like three to five meetings. And off of that, we get to like one pilot deal and the pilot deal just doesn't close. Right. Like, you know, so we, we repeat that over and over again. We go through the objections, right. We try to make iterations on the offer in order to get something that actually closes really, really painful, brutal process. So you're, you're effectively guiding them through this of, of building out and, you know, like, here's how we, 
reach. Here's how we get our, our you know, unit economics to work for this. Here's our CAC. And here are uh, the experiments we're running at every step of this in order to, you know, increase the, you know, how many transition from one stage to the next and, and hopefully uh, close and increase that close rate. That accurate? Yeah, that's right on. I mean, in your example, it's a phenomenal example, right? Like, and, and there's a few questions that you want to be asking yourself in that. It's, am I, am I reaching out to the right person? And it, is my messaging right? And the right person, uh, sorry, and, uh, and is your target persona right? Sorry, profile, right? So what segment of, of a business am I looking at? What are some characteristics? Are they all venture-backed? Or are, are they 50-50 bootstrapped and venture-backed? Uh, which ones are taking meetings? And so like dissecting all these details of who the, the, the ICP is and then your target persona and your messaging to that target persona. And ideally, you can then get to a point where you're reaching out to 100 connections on LinkedIn. You might get 10 responses then and get two into pilots. Those are the micro details we're looking for, and we want to start to test and get really confident in, if that makes sense. Because if I have that, then I can understand repeatability and say, okay, at least we know we can get two into a pilot and at least close one. If I know that, we're in a really good spot because then it's just a, okay, how much can we do here? What does the TAM look like? And uh, what do the unit economics of a sales rep need to be? And the function of that sales team how do they operate? How do we do this as efficiently as possible without hiring a bunch of AEs at $160,000 a year to go in and sell $8,000 a year deals? You have to sell a lot of $8,000 deals in order for that to make sense. So what differences do you see between these bootstrap companies and the venture back companies when it, when it comes to thinking about customer acquisition costs and potentially like cash cycle? venture back are, are typically... They're, they're much more able to test faster. We can test multiple channels at once pretty quickly. And ultimately, we could burn more money faster. The bootstrapped ones are, are just much more conservative than that. And it's interesting because a lot of times they've been around a lot longer. They have less of a product market fit challenge. And therefore, we can, we can focus in on one channel, typically direct, that we could start to scale. They just haven't necessarily nailed that transition still, if that makes sense. So yeah, so, so venture-backed, I mean, the beauty of it, I, that's my whole background is venture-backed and you can, you can typically test a lot faster in a company that might be one, two years old can ideally, if we could throw some money at different channels and start to figure out what's going to work faster. I know in my own business, I like for newly converted deals to, to just pay for themselves basically immediately. When, when I worked in a venture back firm, we were okay with like a six or an eight month payback period, um, on, on those deals. Like we had the cash to play with. It seemed like it seemed nice. We get testimonials up front. Um, you know, there's, there are a lot of benefits for a firm that isn't worried about, you know, cash in the bank to just being able to take those clients and then have them pay back over the course of like two thirds of a year. Um, which now it's when I'm playing with my own money, it's like, this is insane. <laughs> Why would I do that? Yep. So uh, a little bit back, you talked a little bit about the difference between like the ideal customer profile and a persona. 
can we dig a little bit more into that, especially for, you know, non-GTM founders? How should they think about the differences between those two things? Yeah. A lot of founders, they start to correlate their TAM or what they're pitching to a, a VC as their ideal customer profile. And what that typically sounds like is we sell to restaurants and there's a million restaurants in North America. It's like, that's great. But I, I have sold, sold to restaurants for the last two and a half years and now work with a lot of companies that sell to restaurants specifically. There's fast casual restaurants. There's quick serve restaurants. There's, um, uh, you have franchise restaurants. You have corporate owned restaurants. You have independent restaurants. And then the segment of each of these restaurants and ownership structures are very, very different the way that they operate. And so defining your TAM or understanding of your target ICP, it, it more often than not needs to be chunked down four or five more layers. And that scares founders a lot of time because they, they think, oh, well, shit, my TAM is actually only $10 million. That's okay in the early days. They, you have to get over the fact that your TAM might only be $10 million to start with. But what happens is, and I see this all the time, they start to hire sales reps and the sales rep is now going after the TAM of restaurants. And they're calling all these different restaurants, but in reality, the product, you really might only have product market fit in quick serve restaurants with owners that only have between five and 10 stores in these certain brands that are franchised in Ohio. Now all of a sudden your TAM is tiny, but if you can learn to narrow in that type of focus in the early, early days, it will benefit you greatly. And you can start to then build product and your go-to-market motion to expand that TAM over time. But founders try to, they want to expand their TAM way too fast. And in reality, they need to focus way, way, way in and get really, really clear about their ICP before they start to think a hell of a lot bigger. How many of these founders are coming in saying, we are a platform um, on every day one, one with- Almost every single one. Like, yeah, everyone wants to be, they're at 200K of revenue and they're a platform for restaurants, right? Like it's just unrealistic. And, and then unfortunately, like you're, you're a product guy, like it, it leads to really big product challenges because all of a sudden you're building for everyone in the restaurant space. And that's, that's not r real, right? Like the retail sector is the same. The tech sector is the same. Like there's such varying differences in understanding who you're selling to. And that has major product implications. And then all of a sudden you might be at 5 million and realizing that actually we built a product, we built three different products and essentially you have three different companies. I'll give you an example, companies that are trying to do product led and sales led at the same time, you're going to build two different products because you're building two different motions. That is so unrealistic, especially in the early days, you, you need to just commit to one and decide on one because saying you're building an enterprise sales motion, but you're also building a product led is drastically different. So a little bit earlier in the year, right? Uh, yeah, beginning of the year, I went through, you know, and had 50 conversations with, uh, you know, customer, uh, customer success leaders. 
And yeah, that was like a big, a big challenge inside of these organizations that are doing, you know, 20 million to a hundred million dollars in revenue is they're saying, you know, we've built around a sales led motion and we're trying to, you know, move from that to product led or, you know, customer led, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call, uh, you know, these, these, you know, tech enabled sales motions where customers are onboarding themselves, they are taking advantage of incremental features, like all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, the the product challenges in doing that are, are tremendous. So for these sales-led organizations, uh, you know, usually like founder sale, uh, founder-led sales in like the sub $5 million area, um, what are they giving up? Like, what are they having to to undercut in these mid to large deals on the sales led motion in order to you know feed a a product led motion? What are you seeing fall apart when they try to do that? I'm not a product guy, but I've been on the receiving end on the go to market side of this evolution multiple times. It it's going to take two or three times as long as you think it will actually take to potentially transition from a sales-led to a product-led, or vice versa, honestly. You're restarting your go-to-market engine, and I don't think you can discount how long it will actually take to understand the the buyer persona on the receiving end, which is probably drastically different than your end users that are actually self-serving or going into a, a freemium product, right? Give you an example of my sales team. They uh, Scratchpad, very popular tool. Sales reps freaking love Scratchpad. It's annoying as hell because all the sales reps go in. My team, they adopt it. They use it. I never once have purchased Scratchpad. I love Scratchpad. I know a bunch of people there. They're great. But in the day, I was a budget holder. My rev ops leader was a budget holder, and they had a hard time transitioning from this self-serve motion where sales reps maybe should have been paying for it themselves, which to be clear, I had sales reps that would actually pull out their credit card and pay it. But ultimately, they were trying to figure out their, to this day, their go-to-market motion and understanding who their buyer persona is, which is very different than their end user. As a, as a scratch, my team that use Scratchpad, I never once logged into Scratchpad. I honestly, I could kind of tell you what it does. I know nothing about it. Ultimately, what I care about is like when, when my team's at scale is the dashboards and the impact that Scratchpad could have on the business. And so what that looks like in reality is two completely separate products. You're building for a Salesforce integration and like what buttons reps are clicking, but then I'm your economic buyer and I'm, I care about dashboards at that stage. When I have 20, 30, 40 sales reps, I want to understand the the higher level what's going on and being a product guy you understand that those are two very different motions i i care about administrative controls i care about locking features down things like that so that happens all the time is i think it's really really easy to see like cool i have this i have this hr tech private recruiting product that sells to retail or hospitality and i'm gonna we support individual locations and store managers there but we're going to sell to, we're going to sell to JCPenney's or Nordstrom's, right? Well, corporate Nordstrom's is a very different product 
supporting stores as opposed to the general manager that's in a store that really doesn't use technology anyways, if that makes sense. And so that transition is extremely difficult and you're building a whole new go-to-market motion. All of a sudden, if you've built for corporate Nordstrom, now all of a sudden you're targeting a very different persona and profile of a general manager at a store level that doesn't really use technology and isn't used to buying technology, but needs to support individual users at a store level. I've got a client who, um, you know, they're in some of their end customers, their largest, you know, customers are franchisers, right? So there are some services that effectively, you know, the value delivery is at the franchisee level, right? But when the economy starts to get choppy, the franchiser is looking at every vendor partnership, right? On the, on their PNL. They're, they're saying, you know, hey, across all of our franchisees, we are spending this amount every year on this product or service. What are we getting from that? We have no visibility into it, which then becomes like a very hard conversation with the champions where the champions at the firm are saying, hey, like I need to be able to answer X, Y, and Z questions, dashboards, dashboards. I need dashboards that, that show me at an aggregated way level where we're getting value and where on the account we can make changes to get more value basically like and that is a completely different product it's a completely different level of instrumentation there's a, a ton of expensive product work that has to go into it and meanwhile if you wait for it to get to that point you know you you aren't going to be delivering anything until three or four months after that renegotiation is done. That's right. Which is a brutal, brutal dynamic to have inside your team between the go-to-market leaders and your product and engineering teams. Yep. So I want to transition here, though you know this is like really interesting because you've got something else that's really cool that you're working on. You know, fractional executives or you know the executives for hire, anything like that. We're service providers, right? And there's a relatively low multiple on what you're able to get on that. And, you know, we're usually providing transformations with little to no, you know, upside, you know, capture, right? Value capture. It's it's usually like retainer or hourly. You're doing something different. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. Maybe I'll rewind a little bit and tell my experience a little bit. So I, I left my, my most previous company in September of last year and plan on taking the rest of the year off. I got four little kids, an amazing wife, and haven't emotionally seen them for years because I've been building high growth venture back startups. And I, I actually plan on going back full time to the next venture back startup uh, to, to scale again. And I met about 30 founders over the course of November last year. And it was the same story over and over again. The, uh, I, I hired a previous sales leader it didn't really work out. We parted ways. Now we're back to the drawing board. And they were looking to hire me as their next sales leader. So I recognized this huge gap, which is ultimately what led me to consulting. Um, I decided to go all in on consulting early December of last year. Had no idea what to expect. There wasn't really content out there about how to do this. At least that I could find. I had no clue what to do, how to do it, how to structure contracts, how to find customers, whatever. I ended up building my entire consulting business in public because I had so many people that were interested in doing this. Fast forward, it's been 
six months, essentially. I've come from zero to 40K a month pretty consistently. And I still have, I have time, right? Like I have emotional energy to keep going. And ultimately over the last few months, I've had this decision that's been really hard, which is like, I could, I could go get more customers for sure. And I could probably scale this to a million dollars a year. But ultimately I'm trading my time for money and this is not an acquirable asset necessarily. Like Maybe it is to some extent, and don't get me wrong, you totally could. I could build a consulting practice around this, I'm sure. But what I have, the main reason I went consulting is like, it, it allows me flexibility and autonomy to do what I want every single day. I wake up and choose what to do that day. And that's what I love about entrepreneurship in general. And so I've started now to go down this rabbit hole of acquiring a business. And this is probably not going to be a software business. In fact, I'm going the opposite direction. I'm looking at 10 plus year old businesses that are typically service-based businesses, transportation, logistics, landscaping, any sort of few like distribution companies that have been around a long time that don't have product market fit issues. There's some, there's, there's obviously product market fit. And a lot of these are doing anywhere between 800K to 1.5 million in EBITDA uh, every year. And ultimately, my consulting business is what's going to fund an acquisition of another company in a very different sector that I can come in and bring what I have learned over the last 12 years in tech and hope to innovate and adjust what the company's been doing and drive top-line growth, pay down the debt service on it, uh, and then over the course of three to five years, 100% own an asset that is now acquirable or sellable, right? Like I could, I could roll it up to a private equity firm for five to $10 million, depending on what top line and EBITDA is. But so I've been, I've been passively searching for six months. I've been heavily searching for the past two months and I've documented all live. I have a lot of people that are very interested in this. I, I write about it publicly, weekly on my Substack, just blakeharbor.substack.com. It's been a really fun journey so far. A lot of learnings. So what, obviously, like, if you're looking at acquiring these, you know, these service-based businesses, one big problem with, with acquiring these service-based businesses is usually it's like, you know, some middle manager coming in from, you know, some corporate, you know, thing saying, I'm, I'm not doing corporate anymore. I'm going to go run my own business. I'm going to buy something. They don't really know anything about how the how that you know type of business works. They maybe don't have like experience running a transformation. What is like the core of the opportunity that you're seeing in this space that allows you to come in, buy this asset that is you know working for the current owner, and then providing a transformation that is going to make it dramatically more valuable? A lot of these businesses they've been around a long time, and a lot of them don't even have websites. A lot of them are just word of mouth referral business. There's really no direct sales or a lot of them are, they're owners that are just looking to retire and they don't, they haven't cared to grow the business anymore. You know, it's been doing 800K of EBITDA for the last eight years. They don't care to continue to grow it because taking it from 3 million in gross revenue to five or 8 million is a big job and takes a lot of like 
operational excellence to scale that. On top of that, a lot of them don't have like general standard operating procedures. They don't have playbooks on how to basically back themselves out of the business as an owner a lot of times. And there's a lot of opportunity there to come in. I mean, hell, you can take debt 90% loan to value even on some of these for with an SBA and still cash flow really healthy businesses and reinvest every penny back in the business or pay down debt service and all of a sudden be a few years down the road, even if you don't grow top line and own the thing outright. And it's a multi-million dollar asset. I, I, I'm simplifying it a lot. I, it's going to be a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Uh, and there's unique challenges that I understand going into it, but you know, that there's, it's a, it's a formula that works, right? Like my, my father owned a small business growing up, never had a website, literally like all of their AR and AP was on paper in filing cabinets. And this was a business doing $20 million a year in top line and did it for, he owned that thing for 35 years. Uh, the irony is now I'm, I'm actually looking for that exact business to go acquire. <laughs> he sold it off and exited the business since, but you know, th those are the type of businesses I'm looking for that have huge opportunities. Really incredible. So I think that we are just on time here. So Blake, thank you for joining me. Where is the best place for people to find you if they want to reach out and get connected? Yeah. Um, follow your journey. LinkedIn's the best place. I, I write on LinkedIn every day. Um, uh, you can reach out to me. I'm, I, I will eventually get back in my messages. Um, and then Substack, uh, blakeharbor.substack.com. I document my journey live. I'm an open book, man. I'll tell you exactly how I'm finding customers, what I'm doing with them, uh, all my details. So there's a lot of fractional executives that want to do this. And um, that's ultimately like why I started building it publicly is in hopes to uh, help others reduce their dependency on a single employer. So um, yeah, Substack or LinkedIn is the best way. I really do think that fractional is, is going to be the future. I think totally. that a lot of, a lot more, you know, labor is going to be, you know, split across and that way we're going to be able to capture more of people's talents. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Blake, and have a great rest of your day. Great chat. Thanks, Max. Appreciate it.